Well, good morning. We are kicking fear in the teeth around here. Turn in your Bible to Exodus 16. We're continuing our series this morning on fear. There's no shortage of visuals in our culture. We're just going to come do Kung Fu on them and get them all over with and end the series today. This series is about uncovering the tactics of the enemy. Paul the Apostle said, I don't want you to be ignorant of the strategies of the enemy. And one of the big strategies that he uses against our life is fear. I remember when I was, um, through my childhood, there was a story that I don't know if it was my favorite story. It's one of my favorite stories that my family used to tell. When I was a baby two months old, my dad was carrying me in his arms, just a little infant. And uh, our kitchen floor was just uh, hard, cold concrete and linoleum. And, um, and as he was carrying me through that room, he tripped on something. And as he tripped, he knew he had two choices. Drop me or, or shatter his elbows. And, and he wasn't willing to drop me. And so as he fell, he just held me in tight and the full weight of his body and what little I had landed straight on his elbows on that floor, crushed him. And uh, as the years went by, we told that story and laughed about it. You know, what a crazy dilemma. You know, you're just, you're free falling with a baby in your hands. What are you going to do? You're stuck. But, but th- that story was one of my favorite, not because I have some sadist- sadistic pleasure in other people's pain. But that story was one of my favorite because it, it showed me my dad's love. It showed me that even above himself, when he, when he knew how and when he could, he, he would take care of me. He, he, would, he would hold me in his arms and sacrifice even his own elbows, even part of his own body to protect me. All families have stories that remind us that somebody loves us. You know, Every, families tell them. They gather at Christmas, they gather around the... Uh, around the table or whatever, and they tell them. Remember when we lost you in the mall that time? Man, I mean, we called the police, we called the FBI, we called the president, we called everybody we could find. I, I remember hearing a story of my wife's family when she didn't come home from a school bus. And, and man, if any of you know Ron Cox, you know he was burning up the asphalt. And we have st- laughed at that story and told that story and told it. You know why that story is so important? Because it shows her how much her dad loves her. Nothing we wouldn't be willing to do to, to come after you and rescue you and help you if need be. Did you know that the Scripture is jam-packed with stories that reveal God's faithfulness? His willingness to love us? Open the Bible virtually anywhere you want to just about any book, and I guarantee you, you're going to be on a collision course with the story of God's faithfulness. You're not going to find any of, of His unfaithfulness, because He never has been. It's not who he is. You'll find a story of his faithfulness. This morning, I want to retell one of the epic stories in the Bible. The story about how God brought the Israelites from a land of bondage and slavery under Pharaoh into a promised land. And I want to show you inside it how the enemy will attack us and undermine God's plan in our life. And he uses fear. Now, before we tell the story, if you're taking notes this morning, let me just give you some thoughts 
on how fear works. Just set, set it up so you can see it as it happens. I'm convinced that, that one of the greatest strategies of darkness against our life is to, is to chase us away through things like this. You look at this right here. This isn't really scary. Look, And the one that fell, he's not scary at all. But you look at these. These don't look scary. But, but 40 years ago, I think this one is like Dracula in black and white. Let's see. He looks like a shark from the back now, doesn't he? Yeah, look at this guy. Does that really look scary? It, it looks kind of... I mean, look at it. It's not scary, is it? It's in, but if you would have saw the first Dracula when they only had black and white TV, and you would have heard the organ in the back, you would have went... But this is what the enemy does. He puts things up on us that once you see the reality of what they are, they're not scary. But he makes you think they are. And he pushes limitations in on your life. If we're going to experience fear, we usually experience fear at the point of our limitations or our perceived limitations. Where we feel limited or, or, or where, where, where we perceive we're limited, whether we really are or not. We'll hang his jersey in the rafter. He's going in retirement as soon as this is over. The question about fear is, how do you deal with life's limitations? Fear attacks us on the point of time frames. It tries to make you feel responsible now for every limit your life will face forever. It tries to speed up all the limitations and stresses of your life, and it tries to get you to deal with all of them at one time. What will you do when you run out? What will you do when, when you don't have enough? Absolute unlimited supply is a myth in this world. And fear plays on our mind on that reality because everybody runs out of something sometimes and everybody deals with limitations somewhere. So fear says to you, what are you going to do when you run out of money? And you say, well, well, I have enough money to get through this week. What about this month? Well, I'm going to make enough money to get this month. Do you have enough to retire? Do you have enough for retirement? What about retirement? Are you going to be able to retire? You have to work till you're 90 to retire. You're going to have enough then? Well, I, I, I don't... I, I don't know if I, I don't know. We'll see. Well, what are you going to do when your kids go to college? Do you have enough for that? Can you pay your house off? Can you pay your car off? Can you pay your bills off? What about when you run out of answers? What about when you face, you face a situation and you don't know what to do? And fear's going to say to you, what are you going to do when you don't know what to do? You know what to do now. You know what to do with this and this and this. But what about all of that that you're not going to know what to do when? What if this happens and you don't know what to do? That's what fear does. It tries to strangle the life of God out of you. It tries to strangle faith out of you. Fear says to you, what are you going to do when, when, when you have a limitation in your health? Even the wealthiest people on earth will deal with issues of health eventually. Because nobody lives forever. And that's what fear will say to you. What are you going to do when you can't drive yourself to the store anymore? What are you going to do when you can't take care of this? What are you going to do if that happens? What are you going to do if you have cancer? What are you going to do if you have a heart attack? What are you going to do if this happens? It tries to strangle you. And then, and then there's youthfulness. What are you going to do when you don't have the energy? What are you going to do when you can't do this? All those, 
I mean, it, it's completely illogical. But you have people at times of their life that don't face a limitation anywhere, but are paralyzed because they're living in the fear of all the ones that might be coming. Well, look at me like I'm crazy. You know exactly what I'm talking about. What are you going to do when you don't have control over the circumstances of your life? If you can understand that, you know exactly where the Israelites were when we picked their story up in Exodus 16. God had sent uh, uh, Moses and Aaron to be uh, prophets and to withstand Pharaoh. And there was miracle after miracle after miracle. And they were freed from slavery. And they moved across the Red Sea on dry land. And they moved into the wilderness. And now, and now they get out into the wilderness. And they're, and, they're, and they're stuck out here. And they're beginning to be afraid. Look at Exodus chapter 16, 1 through 3. The whole is, you think you got problems. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin. That should tell us something. Which is between Elam and Sinai on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. Maybe 45 days. In the desert, here we go again, the whole community. You think you've worked the complaint counter? Let a million people complain against you and your buddy Aaron. <laughs> and Aaron says, who's we, pale face? I'm out of this. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. Boy, wouldn't, death would have been so much better than this. There we sat around, now watch this, remember this. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted... But you have brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Fear, let me tell you one of the good things fear can do if you'll let it. Fear causes you to cry out for someone bigger than you. I mean, you've ever been pinned up against a wall, you know, pinned up against the wall somewhere you're back to the wall, not knowing what to do, totally facing a limitation, can't find a job, can't figure this out, don't know how to fix this relationship, whatever. Oh, totally overwhelmed by life circumstances. And that fear will push a cry in you for someone bigger to come fix it. Can't the police help me? Can't the government help me? Can't, can't someone help me? I, I remember when um, Hurricane Katrina hit, uh, about four days after Katrina, the very first time that we entered the building, it was it was nasty. It stunk. There were ceiling tiles hanging, mold on the walls. The carpet was ruined. You could look up through the sanctuary ceiling and see sky. We had a new sunroof. You could you broke the seal on those doors. It was like breaking a tomb open. You could just hear them crack and dust and no electricity. It was terrible. And the two staff that we had left, I took them in the back room of the church and we sat and started to talk and said, wow, didn't see this coming. What are we going to do? And about 15 minutes later, somebody knocked on the door. And, and somebody said, hey, there's some guys out front here. I think you might want to go talk to them. So well, what are they doing? Well, I, I think they want to help. All right. 
Uh, parking lots empty, vacant, stuff strode all over the front yard of the church. All, everywhere you could look, stuff was destroyed. I went out there and talked to them. I go out there and they've got like these big metal wire rakes dragging stuff down out of the ceiling, knocking it down, picking it up, ripping the carpet up. They've got bobcats that they're running stuff in the parking lot, big flatbed trucks with generators on it. They're going to hook us up on and get our power going. They've got a um, temporary cook kitchen. They're going to start cooking hot meals. And I went, wow, hey, this could work. But you know what happens? There's that sense inside all of us when we're overwhelmed and filled with fear that, we, that we're longing for someone bigger than us to help. And can I tell you something? It, the enemy, one of his problems is he doesn't know when to quit. And if you'll let him push you with that fear and drive you straight into God's arms and say, there is somebody bigger. There is somebody that can help. There is somebody that can redeem me and save my mind and save my life. Fear pushes up a cry. It's it's a way to connect with God. Don't let the fear drive you from him. Let it drive you to him. Stacy and I were talking with a a lady this week. It was clear she was absolutely overwhelmed. Single mom, struggling in every way possible. And I said to her, we prayed with her. And I said to her, I said, I want you to go home tonight. And shut your bedroom door. And I want you to lift your eyes up to heaven. And I want you just to worship God. Just She was overwhelmed with fear. Let this fear. Let this fear push you up and say God. Isn't that the widow woman that came to the unjust judge? Isn't that what happened? She kept coming back again and again and again and again. And that fear will push you if you'll allow it. Now. Another thing that fear will do to you. That's not good. If you're taking notes. It will give you a serious case of memory loss. Almost total amnesia. The Israelites had been bitten by this bug. Serious case of memory loss. Never mind that God had sent Moses and Aaron to face Pharaoh down and deliver them out of slavery. Never mind that God had sent supernatural plagues of frogs and locusts and and the water into blood and killed the firstborn of everyone in Pharaoh's house in Egypt. Never mind that God had led them in in the wilderness with a cloud by day supernaturally and a fire by night. Never mind that he had parted the Red Sea and held the water back with his own hand and a million people walked across on dry land. Never mind that as they got to the other side... The water collapsed on Pharaoh and killed Pharaoh and his entire army. Never mind all that. That was then. This is now and we're hungry. Does it sound familiar? Fear causes severe memory loss. When I'm afraid, I can't remember one good thing God's ever done. It suffocates those divine memories out of my mind. What about the time that you were sick and God healed you? What, what about when you needed a job and, and the provision came? 
What about when you needed wisdom, you didn't know what to do, and God guided you? What about that relationship you were having 10 or 15 years ago, and God guided you through it and showed you how to reconcile it and heal it? What about when your mind was in bondage to darkness, and you lived in sin, and the enemy told you you'd never be free, and your mind has been exploded with his light, and you're free now? Never mind all that. That was then, and this is now. And that's what he tells you. This, oh, no, no. Yeah, God worked then, but God's not going to work now. This is different. And after a little while of warming your hands by fierce fire, you can't remember one good thing God's done. And you start to think, maybe it was coincidence. Maybe, maybe I made some of that up. Maybe it's not really real. Fear calls them to forget, and fear causes you and I to forget. It's one of Satan's greatest weapons. It'll make you forget every good thing God's ever done. There's another thing that it'll do. As we go through this series, I want to encourage you to listen to your fear. So many times, a rush of emotion shoots through our veins, and we feel it, but we don't hear it. We, 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 we ride, we react to the emotion that we feel and it just surges. And we don't know what to do with it, but what I want to encourage you to do is listen to it. Fear has meaning. Well, shoot. I mean, let's get it over with. There you go. Anybody else? Are we ready now? <laughs> That's what you got to do. Get fear out of the house. They look even worse from the back. Fear has meaning. If you're taking notes, fear will tell you two things. And if you'll listen, it'll tell you these. It will tell you what you trust. And it will tell you what you do not trust. Fear will tell you what you trust and it will tell you what you do not trust. What fear told the entire company of the Israelites, it told them and it told us they didn't trust Moses, they didn't trust Aaron, and they didn't trust God. Yeah, you did that and that and that and that and, that and all that soon in the seeds. Well, that was all cool in the fire, but that was all great, but I don't trust you. That was good for them. But I don't trust you. Fundamentally, fear is a lack of trust in God. Negative, life-controlling, and bondaging fear is a lack of trust in God. Fear most often reveals that we don't trust God. Fear will tell you what you, fear will tell you, what you don't trust... And fear will tell you what you do trust. What, what did that whole drama, when they came complaining against Moses and Aaron, what did that whole drama tell, tell them? You, you know, it's hard for us to get an objective view of ourselves, isn't it? So, so we've got to look at the uh, lights on the dashboard and watch them light up to give us clues on what we're going through. Other people can see it clear, but we can't see ourselves as clear. 
So when you are rushed with fear, when that fear comes into you, you've got to slow that thing down and say, what is this telling me? It's telling me that I don't trust, probably don't trust God in this area, but it'll also tell you what you do trust. What did the, what did the Israelites trust? They trusted the familiarity of bondage. At least we know what tomorrow will be like. Oh, I may be addicted to this, but it's my security blanket. I may have this problem in my life, but I've had it a long time, and I know how to live with it. I've eked out an existence with it, and I know how to carry on. What, 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 what did the Scripture say? At least back there, we gathered around pots of meat, and we could eat all we wanted. They trusted the familiarity of bondage. They trusted the meat in the pot given by Pharaoh's hand. They trusted the food. It tells you what you do trust. Fear will always reveal to you what you trust. Think in your own mind, what's the thing you're afraid of losing? Now, there, there are some, to some extent, natural fears or, or in some ways positive fears. We all have concern about our children. We all have natural concerns that motivate us to do good things. It's when they become bondages. It's when they control our mind. It's when they shrink us down from what God wants us to be. That's when they've crossed the line. So, so back up from those for a minute and ask yourself, what is it that I'm trusting to have a sense of wholeness and purpose about my life? What is that one thing I said? If I lost that, I, 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 my life would lose its meaning. If you put anything in that blank other than God, then it tells you in some way you're trusting it. it that fear's revealing to you, that anxiety's revealing to you what you're trusting. Now look at ex- Exodus 16, 4 and 5. Go on to the next couple of verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out and, uh, each day and gather enough for that day. In this way I will test them. Now circle that word test and see whether they'll follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that's to be twice as much as they gather the other days. This is a curveball. In the middle of your fear, expect a test. That doesn't even seem right, does it? Because what you're saying is, no, 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 God. (laughs) Wait till I get this resolved... And then, and then test me. Wait till I study. Teacher, can I have the weekend? I'm not ready for this test. Can I prepare? Wait till I deal with this fear and then test me. And what God's trying to say is, I'm testing you to show you that you don't trust me. If I don't test you in the middle of your fear, you'll never get out of it. It seems harsh. It seems like the time we want God to leave us alone. But God says, no, I'm the one giving the test. And I'll give it when I want to give it. And I want to give it now. We want to get our act together and then let him test us because we want to keep depending on ourselves. And God says, no, I'm going to test you now to reveal to you you are depending on yourself. And the only way to get out of the fear you're in is not to work it out. If you could work it out on your own, you know, you wouldn't need me. But you do. So let me test you and I'll show you the way out. See, God is still... In the middle of our fear, working on the relationship. He knows that trusting Him is the only way out. The test has a purpose. It's designed to expose traitors at wartime. 
The test will reveal what part of your heart and my heart is a traitor to God. It'll reveal what part of our hearts are rebellious to God. It will reveal what part of our heart doesn't trust Him because He knows that that the heart has mixed allegiances. Proverbs says, above all things, the heart is most deceitful. The purpose of the test is to help us see our heart and find that parts that reverse. But what God's not going to do is drag us out in front of everybody and roll us out there and say, see, there you go. I found a traitor. Look, everybody, I found a traitor to me. Kill him. What God's going to do is say, you took the test. It's like an x-ray. It's not that God didn't know. It's that we didn't. We take the test. He holds the mirror up and says, this is what we found on the x-ray. There's part of your heart now. Give that part of your heart to me and I'll heal it. I'll deliver you from it. I'll, I'll, I'll bring it into alignment with myself. Fear tries to get you to personally take on the responsibility for your entire life today. All of it, all at once. God says in verse 4 and 5, I'll drop the manna. You go out and pick up enough for today. God was trying to teach Israel a different pattern than the one they had known. They're looking into the future. They're looking far ahead. They're looking at what's coming. They're looking at tomorrow. They're looking at the next day. And what God's saying to them is, no, look, I'll rain the manna down from heaven. Go and pick up enough for today. Do not pick up any for tomorrow. It'll rot. Because tomorrow I'll meet you here again. And I'll drop more. Just trust me for today. Fear tries to get you to tackle your whole life at once. God tries to get you to to embrace the life he's given you one day at a time. Say, God, I trust you for today. Did Did I have what I needed today? Yes, God is good. Did I have what I needed today? Yes, God is faithful. Why then do I extrapolate out into the future limitations that I'm not even sure I'm going to face and blame God for them? Do I have what I need today? Yes. But every day that I come and God meets me there with more manna, the more I trust God. And, and it's when I say, how, how are, see, when the children of Israel said, forget Moses, forget Aaron, Forget all this craziness. Forget all that that happened in the past. I forget, I'm tired of eating this bread. What I want to know is, when are we going to get out of this wilderness? When they started, when they started with that long-term challenge, fear crept in on them. And they begin to complain and grumble and murmur. And that fear overwhelms you. What God's answer was, eat the bread I gave you today. By the way, that system of God will drop bread from heaven and you'll come eat it for today lasted 40 years. Four decades. God fed the children of Israel that way. Now on the surface, this story looks like it's about manna and daily needs. It's simple. Hungry people complained and they got food. But the story's not about that. It's about more than that. Do you ever think that some of the provision challenges that you and I face in life may actually be tests sent from God to reveal our hearts to ourselves? 
And too many times we're, we're distrusting and frustrated and angry that we even got given the test at all. But the test isn't to harm us. The test is to help us. The test is to purify out of ourselves the distrust that we have in God. God told Moses, as the, as the story advanced on, and, and fast forward your mind all the way, they're through the wilderness, they're coming out, Moses is about to pass the baton to Joshua. God has told Moses, you're not going to go in the promised land. You're going to step aside. You're going to separate from the people. You're going to die here. They're going to go into the promised land without you. And in in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses is reflecting with the Israelites that he's about to separate from. And he's telling them, hey, when you go in, remember God gave us the Ten Commandments at Mount Horeb. Hey, we're on the right path now. We, we ate manna. We did the deal. We learned the story. The wilderness is behind us. When you go into this new land flowing with milk and honey, flowing with, you know why God didn't give them a, 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 a year's worth of manna at one time? Because they wouldn't talk to him for another year. Right? So why do we need God? We got manna to depend on. We can trust manna. Trust in manna. It'd be on their dollar. What would be the point? But as Moses is transitioning, look at Deuteronomy chapter 8. Moses is reflecting on the years in the wilderness. And he's setting a compass in them for the future. And look at the very, very, very first word of that verse. Remember. Fear causes you to forget everything good God's ever done. And Moses says, I can't go with you there. But when you come into the land flowing with milk and honey, remember, let's don't do this again. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert in these 40 years. Why did he do it? To humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger And then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known. Why did he do all that? Now, this is very important. Zero in on this part of the verse. To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Do you recognize that verse? When Jesus was in his wilderness, he quoted Moses. When the enemy came against him and said, Aren't you hungry? Don't you lack? Aren't you God's son? Throw yourself down off here. Take a shortcut. Do it your own way. Show everybody who you are. In your stomach shrinking in with pain. Turn those rocks to stone. Jesus quoted Moses. Jesus learned the lesson up front, that the Israelites went through the wilderness to learn. You know, Jesus was in the desert 40 days. Do you think that's a coincidence? 40 years, 40 days. They didn't trust God, but they trusted the food and the bondage and the familiarity of slavery in Pharaoh's house. Jesus didn't trust the physical food, but the spiritual food and the dependence on his father. Jesus said, I have what I need most. They said, we're doing without, we're going to die out here. And it'd been better if we already did. Jesus said, 
I have what I need most, and my Father will take care of me. Jesus learned in 40 days what it took them 40 years to learn. If you're looking for a role model in the wilderness, I'd go more for Jesus than the Israelites. I'm going to ask Pastor Micah to come. I had an opportunity a few years ago to meet a man you, you may have heard of named Bill Bright. I got an opportunity to go into a small uh, breakfast with him. I didn't know a lot about him. Through the years on and off, I've gotten to know some things about him and in our, in our con- group conversation together learn more. In 1952, Bill and Vonette Bright set a contract with God in their living room. He was a businessman, so he didn't know how else to think about it. He, he called it a contract, contract with God. And he and his wife that night knelt in the living room and said, God, our life is yours from this day forward. You will make the decisions. You will tell us what to do. You will tell us where to go. You will, you will tell us what our life is about, and we will follow you. He said that somewhere later in life, somebody asked him about that, and they said, boy, that's, that's a, boy that must really be hard on you. I mean, to not know what your next step is, to not know what's coming, to not know if you have any security, to not know where your living's going to, not know what's going to happen. And Bill Wright said, don't, don't have any pity on me. He said, my wife and I have been spared so much anxiety and heartache and worry and fear because our life is not our own, it's God's. Don't ever pity us. We got away with it. Bill Bright started Campus Crusade for Christ, which at the time of his death, may probably still is, the largest Christian ministry in the world. 26,000 staff, 191 countries. Bill Bright, I don't know if they still run this way, but up until his death, they did. Bill Bright, purposed to trust God as much as he could. The rule that Campus Crusade for Christ was started on was every day, every day at the end of the business day, globally, Campus Crusade for Christ would empty their bank account. The close of business every day, they'd empty their bank account. And he said, when I started this ministry, I felt like God told me, we will live on what comes in today. And God supplied for 26,000 staff in 191 countries of the world. Trust. Trust. In 1996, Bill Bright was presented a prestigious award called the Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion. It is the world's largest financial annual award. It's worth more than a million dollars. Now, if you were Bill Bright, if I were Bill Bright, I might say... You know, I have lived on the edge of faith and trust all my life. God is finally rewarding me. Bill Bright gave every dime away. And he said, my life has never been my own. And it's not going to start being my own now. I trust God. He gave all of it away. (laughs) Unbelievable.